KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, should Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer retire? He's 82 and apparently healthy, but his retirement would give Biden a chance to nominate a younger person. He has promised a black woman who could be confirmed now while Democrats still control the Senate. Joan Walsh will comment. Also, our TV critic Ella Taylor will comment on the film Another Round. That's the Danish movie that's been nominated for an Oscar. It's about four high school teachers bored with their work who come up with an unusual solution. But first, we're still thinking about the defeat of the union trying to organize the Amazon Fulfillment Center in Bessemer, Alabama last week. The vote was 737 in favor and 1,798 against, more than two to one against. What happened? What went wrong? For comment and analysis, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect and a contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. Harold, welcome back. Uh, always good to be here, John. Well, the union defeat at Amazon and Bessemer is only the latest in a long history of defeat. When was the last time any union had a major victory at a big company in America? Well, I, I think it was uh, in an analogous situation, the unionization of the uh, Smithfield Slaughterhouse uh, factory in uh, North Carolina, which was, I think, 12 years ago. Uh, so that's a long time to go without an analogous uh, uh, victory. Uh, and I think when you said what went wrong, well, this is par for the course is what happened at, uh, at Bessemer. The deck is so stacked against workers being able to form unions in for-profit companies if they are, for lack of a better term, replaceable workers um, that a, a, a victory is, a, is something of a unicorn. It, it, it uh, you know, where once this kind of contest usually ended in the workers uh, indeed securing the right to form a union, that is no longer the case. I think we can all agree that the biggest single cause of the Amazon defeat was the laws of the United States, but the union that was trying to organize at Amazon in Bessemer, that was the retail, wholesale, and department store workers, made a series of tactical and strategic mistakes. At least that's what The Nation magazine has argued in a piece by Jane McAlevey. They didn't visit workers at home. Their messaging was off, she says, focusing on the right to vote in an NLRB election rather than on persuading workers to join the union from the get-go. They relied on endorsements and rallies with national celebrities when local endorsements would have been much more effective. How much of this do you think was true and how important was it? Uh, it was half the picture. I, I mean, uh, Jane McAlevey is right that most of these did not work out well. What all of us who watch this stuff and who have experience writing about uh, organizing campaigns should have picked up on right away, but I don't think any of us did, was that the union went into this thinking that there were 1,500 workers at the plant, whereas there were actually 5,800. That, it, it stand back for a minute, and that kind of suggests the union wasn't really on top of what was going on, uh, and that, you know, they needed a greater density of union activists within the plant who could have reported on this huge increase, uh, and they didn't have it. Um, in a certain sense, uh, I think where uh, Jane McAlevey is headed is that this was, some of this was what would be called hot shop organizing, where some zealous workers come to a union and say, say, hey, you know, this place is ready to erupt, let's do it, and the union says yes, and then it turns out that that was, to put it mildly, faulty intelligence. I don't think it was a problem that the union got uh, outside people, uh, beginning with Joe Biden, in, in essence, <laughs> to was. endorse the effort. Uh, but this is the kind of campaign that takes a long time. The Smithfield campaign was only one on its uh, third try. And, and before that, the, the previous analogous campaign in the South that won 
Fieldcrest Cannon. They lost three times before they did uh, uh, won a victory. So uh, this stuff takes time. It does take home visits, which were curtailed, to put it mildly, uh, because of the pandemic. It takes all kinds of things. Uh, but, you know, the problem, if we pull back even further, is that union campaigns that do everything right still overwhelmingly lose in, in, in big private sector companies. Amazon is the second largest uh, private sector employer in the country. Walmart is number one. The parent union of the uh, retail wholesale union, um, the United Food and Commercial Workers, spent years trying to figure out how to get Walmart to unionize. And, and you know, they never got anywhere because Walmart used the same tactics as uh, Amazon in just totally squashing their workers. I mean, the extreme a- uh, anecdote is when meat cutters in one Walmart uh, store in Texas sought to unionize, the company's response was to stop having meat cutting departments, not only in that store, not only in every store in Texas, but in every Walmart in Texas and the six surrounding states. Oh, yeah. uh, that's, you know, like dropping an atomic bomb uh, in response to a fly in your house. You know, labor law permits all kinds of coercive tactics like meetings with management that workers are compelled to attend, like one-on-one talks with your supervisor. And if you are a worker in an Amazon warehouse or a Walmart, uh, that supervisor, if he doesn't like you, you know, there's no reason you might be, uh, there's no reason you couldn't be out on the street the next day. So all of this is, uh, is, is a real problem. And uh, the kind of legislation that's been uh, passed in the House now called the PRO Act uh, would uh, ban most of, if not all of these uh, management strategies to suppress workers' rights. But then again, it has to pass in the Senate and uh, uh, that would require at least the abolition of the filibuster. And so it's, it's still an uphill climb. Well, the other thing that occurred to me was that maybe the South isn't the most fertile ground for a campaign against Amazon or Walmart. Why don't they do this in Los Angeles or Southern California, which is a much more uh, favorable landscape to unions? Amazon has these gigantic warehouses out in the uh, Inland Empire where all the stuff that comes from China is unloaded at the port, heads out there. There's tens of thousands of people working at Amazon warehouses out there. How about trying to organize them? Well, I wrote a story for my magazine, for the American Prospect in 2009, uh, on an attempt to organize the Walmart workers in an equally large group of warehouses in the same terrain. But Walmart had walled itself off from any responsibility for, for those workers. First of all, Walmart didn't even own the warehouses. They were owned by local real estate companies and Walmart leased them. And then neither Walmart nor the real estate or logistics companies who ran the warehouses actually employed the workers. And there were 100,000 workers working in this cluster of warehouses around Ontario and Fontana. 270 temporary employment agencies had sprung up in the area to provide these warehouses with their workers. I spoke to workers who'd worked in warehouses for years, never changing jobs, but who had been formally legally employed by a succession of maybe seven or eight temp agencies while they held the same job. Under those conditions, unionization was, you know, all all but impossible. And, uh, SEIU and the Teamsters uh, had been looking at this and working it, and finally they basically gave up. But I mean, there is a particular problem in the South. If you were discharged where the wage, the base wage, wage is $15.30 an hour, you would be going out into a labor market where uh, in one of the six states that has never passed a minimum wage law of its own, five of which are in the deep south. And if you want to make some lineal descent from slavery, you go right ahead from that. Let's, uh, let's do that. Yeah, well, so the minimum wage in uh, in Alabama is $7.25. So, you know, if you're let go from the Amazon warehouse and you're looking at a bunch of jobs that offer less than half of what Amazon was paying, uh, you get pretty justifiably nervous. If there were a national minimum wage of $15, that would change the picture. But 
you know, it's not just Amazon that's in the South. All of these European and Japanese transplants, auto plants for Volkswagen and Mercedes and Volvo, uh, they all locate in the South too. Knowing that the absence of comparably paying jobs is a deterrent to unionization. So th this is one of the arguments in favor, I think, of a, of a national minimum wage of 15. Aren't unions more popular than ever in America today? Yes. Uh, the latest polls from both Pew and Gallup had the uh, approval rating of unions uh, at a record high of 65%, which they haven't been close to since maybe the 1960s. So in half a century, uh, it's at an all-time high. What that has meant, actually, is that workers who aren't really replaceable are, in fact, joining unions. And there continue to be union victories in universities, in hospitals, in uh, newspapers, historically anti-union papers, the LA Times and the Chicago Tribune. There's a relatively new union called the Nonprofit Professional Employees Union, NPEU, which I know about in part because the head of the union actually was on the staff of the Economic Policy Institute, which is down the hall from the American Prospect offices. They have been just sweeping through all kinds of nonprofits. And uh, yesterday, it, they, they announced that staff unions have formed and uh, have a majority of the workers and are requesting voluntary recognition at maybe two of the largest and most venerable and established think tanks here in Washington, D.C., the Brookings Institution and the uh, Urban Institute. And, you and said, what I you said, let me interrupt you. You said they're requesting voluntary recognition. That is a shocking idea in the context of this conversation. Yeah, well, but this happens uh, when you're unionizing what is, con you know, is considered to be liberal management. The nine workers who could be classified as union workers at my magazine uh, unionized, and they asked us for voluntary recognition, not to go through the process of holding an election. And we said, sure. So that is the hope of the workers at Brookings and the Urban Institute. And in what I thought was a completely justifiable act of chutzpah in their, <laughs> in their statement, they said, you know, our institutions have produced many research papers proving that unions uh, benefit the greater society, uh, close the racial wealth gap, close economic inequality, provide greater opportunities, et cetera, et cetera. We believe in our research and, you know, we, we, want, uh, we want a union. It's almost like to say, if you oppose us, you're questioning the validity of your own studies, goddammit. Uh, so, you know, this was, uh, this was striking. Getting back to, to uh, Amazon and Bessemer, is this it for trying to organize Amazon in, in Bessemer? You said the Smithfield meatpacking uh, organizing campaign was defeated what twice, but in the one on the third campaign, is the right. are the uh, retail, wholesale, and department store workers uh, union going to stay there? I mean, Amazon, Amazon has something like more more than a hundred of these gigantic warehouses all over the place. Their founder, of course, is the richest man in the world. Uh, Amazon needs to be organized. Uh, it does. So that that raises two questions: Will the RWDSU keep fighting uh, for uh, another round, or if needs be two rounds, or if needs be three rounds in Bessemer. And they, they said they will. That deals with that. But then comes the whole question of how do you organize uh, a company that has 110 mega warehouses? Or alternatively, how do you organize Walmart, which has 5,100 Walmart outlets in the United States? Or since this was the original goal of the fight for 15 and a union, how do you organize McDonald's, which has tens of thousands of outlets in the United States? So some activists in labor, including the president of SEIU, Mary Kay Henry, and the former president of the communication workers, Larry Cohen, said we need to enact a law that enables us to do sectoral organizing, to sit down with you know, the officials of the entire chain or the chain and its franchises and deal with them. I mean, you know, when industrial unionizing took off in this country in the 1930s, it took off when UAW workers uh, had sit-in strikes and occupied 
four General Motors plants in Flint, Michigan. And that was enough to keep the other plants uh, from running because they made parts that the other plants needed to build a car. But you can't really do that when a company, you know, if, if, if for some reason the, the parent union of the uh, retail wholesale workers was able to take five or 10 uh, Amazon warehouses on strike, that really wouldn't, you know, affect the workings of the whole chain, much less shutting down even 100 Walmarts when they have 5,000 others or a thousand McDonald's when they have still have tens of thousands of others. And so that is the logic behind sectoral bargaining, that the spread of these kinds of institutions away from manufacturing, which is relatively centralized in a finite number of, uh, of workplaces, into uh, service providers and retailers, that requires a kind of level of sectoral organizing that can only be done if the labor law is... Uh, significantly changed. Well, in the meantime, labor has adopted a a sort of a a middle-level strategy in places like Los Angeles, Chicago, New York, San Francisco, of getting municipal laws that are more favorable to their workers. Uh, Here in Los Angeles, uh, workers in in grocery, in the grocery store uh, union, launched a campaign to get hazard pay in the cities of Los Angeles, and they convinced several of the cities, starting with Long Beach and then Los Angeles itself, to require that the big grocery chains pay hazard pay during the pandemic of $15 an hour. Uh, The city council in LA voted for this almost unanimously. So this is another way to do it. But then the news this week is that Ralph's has announced in retaliation, it's gonna close three of its uh, stores, one in West LA on on Pico Boulevard in Beverlywood, one in South Central on Slauson, and a Food for Less, their their cheaper chain, on Sunset Boulevard. And now this is a big flashpoint for this strategy of getting cities to take action. What can you tell us about this? Two things. First of all, uh, it's the success of getting, you know, Ralph's, to the contrary, notwithstanding, the success of getting this kind of measure through kind of illustrates the success and failures of the Fight for 15 campaign that SEIU and some community groups uh, originated seven years ago. They succeeded through political pressure and having a lot of members in certain liberal locales in getting cities and states to raise a minimum wage to $15 in New York State and California, most sweepingly. But it's not there yet, which is why the $15, you know, it, it raises gradually, which is why the $15 would still be a hike uh, in L.A. area supermarkets. The L.A. supermarket union, Local 770 of the United Food and Commercial Workers, which is also USCW is the parent union for the retail wholesale workers, is a very, a very good and politically smart union that, that persuaded the city council to do this because their workers you know, we're taking risks and a lot of them had come down with COVID and some had died. And this is the kind of thing uh, unions exist for is to provide that extra protection. Ralph's out of sheer peak, they can afford it, uh, closed three stores. One of which when I lived in LA, I used to patronize the one on Pico Boulevard. It, it's really a kind of outrageous response. Um, you know, I mean, if they didn't close down their stores because the state raise the minimum wage gradually, it will hit $15. This is just, uh, you know, uh, responding to almost what amounts to a symbolic action with real world uh, heartlessness. Several other cities have passed this hazard pay, San Jose, San Francisco, West Hollywood, Montebello. Kroger announced plans to close two stores in Seattle to punish them. And here the California Grocers Association has filed a lawsuit against the the ordinance in federal court, arguing that it's unconstitutional to require that grocery workers get hazard pay. I looked up, what's the constitutional argument here? They say it violates the 14th Amendment guarantee of equal protection because it treats grocery workers differently from other workers. 
Now, I know you're not a constitutional law expert, but I wonder what you think of that argument. Well, first of all, it's a continuation of the century and a half long perversion of the 14th Amendment, which was basically written to provide equal rights to freed slaves and uh, the least advantaged among us, but which conservative courts quickly de facto rewrote so that it became a tool for corporations. But I mean, the common sense uh, rebuttal to the corporation's argument is that workers in supermarkets endure special risks for which uh, the local governments can provide, you know, can mandate proviso of them with uh, compensatory reward. They have a second argument in their lawsuit, and that is that hazard pay mandated by the city violates the National Labor Relations Act because it, quote, get this, violates the integrity of the collective bargaining process, close quote. What do you think about that? Say that again. I said, oh, brother. Oh, Uh, brother. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I mean, oh, brother, where art thou? Uh, Among other things, uh, the ordinance that the city council enacted applies to non-union groceries as well as union groceries. So I don't think it has given any privileged uh, punishment, as it were, to stores that have collective bargaining agreements. Uh, but again, I'm not a lawyer, but you know, the word chutzpah <laughs> ra- raise, uh, just yes. is uh, floating above this Thank entire you. discussion. I, I Thank you. certainly... Let's just note that Kroger is the largest supermarket chain in the world, $120 billion in retail sales. It's also the third largest retail company of any kind in the world based on revenue. The only ones that are bigger are Walmart and then Costco. And number three in the world is Albertsons. The number three supermarket chain in the world is Albertsons, $60 billion of income. Well, one final topic Uh, not about corporations and workers' rights, but corporations and voting rights. On Wednesday, the New York Times had a huge two-page centerfold ad, which is a statement headlined, We Stand for Democracy, signed by a huge number of America's biggest corporations, which declared collectively, quote, we feel a responsibility to defend the right to vote and to oppose any discriminatory legislation that restricts or prevents people from having an equal and fair opportunity to vote. And the list, just starting at the top of the list, it starts out with Airbnb, Alphabet, which is Google, Amazon, American Airlines, American Express, Apple, Bank of America, Berkshire, Best Buy. I think you get the picture. I noticed that Mitch McConnell said a few days ago, quote, my advice to corporations is stay out of politics, close quote. Is that what he's talking about here? Uh, Yes. And uh, uh, he had to take that back for fear that uh, corporations might interpret that as meaning don't give to Republican candidates, (laughs) uh, which which he realized probably instantly after he said it and then issued a semi-retraction. Three things about that ad. One, it also ran today uh, as a double-page ad in the Washington Post and in the Wall Street Journal. So, uh, And for all I know, it's run in smaller papers, too. Those are more or less the three national papers. Secondly, uh, it's interesting to see who is on that list and who isn't, but in particular... You have companies that are affirming uh, the need for voter access, uh, democracy in, in that sphere, quite, quite an impressive list. But these are also companies that tend to suppress their workers' rights to cast free and fair ballots for unionization. Not only was Amazon on that list, but there was also a list of prominent national law firms. It was almost all of them who were signatory. And among them was a law firm called Morgan Lewis which is known as the premier union-busting law firm in the United States. I, I mean, there's a, the, there's a bit of a double standard there, to put it gently. But, um, you know, we should uh, welcome corporate support when, for whatever reason, it's, it's on the right side. I mean, look, corporations understand that both their workforces and their consumers in, increasingly are a racially diverse group because America 
is increasingly racially diverse. And this is where the Republican Party is the outlier because their own electorate is not racially diverse. It's more than, it's about 90% white. And that's why you see this particular rift. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Always great to have you on the show. Great to be here, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer is 82 years old. Many liberals are calling on him to retire so that Joe Biden can get a younger successor confirmed by this Senate before the 2022 elections, when Democrats may lose control of the next Senate. But should Breyer retire? He seems perfectly healthy and competent. For comment, we turn to Joan Walsh. Of course, she's the nation's national affairs correspondent and the producer of The Sit-In, the documentary on Peacock TV about the week in 1968 when Harry Belafonte hosted The Tonight Show. We reached her today at home in Manhattan. Joan, welcome back. Thanks, John. Great to be here. Well, back in 2013, when after Obama was re-elected, some of our friends called on Ruth Bader Ginsburg to retire. She refused, and you defended her decision. What was your thinking at that point? My thinking was, you know, women are are often starting their careers later in life. Uh, wasn't so much true for Justice Ginsburg, but in general. And she was just the most liberal justice I could imagine. I mean, I think Sonia Sotomayor has come along and and taken that spot. But at the time, Justice Ginsburg was saying, you know, Obama will never appoint anybody like me. She was an ACLU attorney, you know, clearly pro-choice, just held views that could, you know, no longer be confirmed. And... And, and I just thought she was great. You know, I don't even think that the notorious RBG stuff had totally started at that point. Finally, like her, I thought, well, she will retire when President Hillary Clinton is elected. But that didn't happen. And so, you know, we saw we saw what happened. We've we've seen what happened with the refusal to let President Obama appoint Merrick Garland to replace Antonin Scalia. We've seen what happened once Trump got elected and pushing through horrific judges. And so I am just afraid right now that we are in a situation where it, we've got about a year to confirm a Democratic appointee at, at most. Well, if Breyer resigned, Biden has promised to appoint a black woman but there aren't very many black women on the federal bench, especially at the appeals court level, which is where I understand 11 of the last 12 Supreme Court nominees have come. There are five black women there. All of them will be 68 or older this year. Who's on the list? There are a variety of great black women being mentioned. Uh, J. Michelle Childs uh, of South Carolina is a, is a favorite of Jim Clyburn, who often gets his way. Leslie Abrams Wagner, Stacey Abrams' sister, but she's got much more going for her than that. She's brilliant in her own right, is another person who's mentioned. I've always pushed for Sherilyn Eiffel of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund because, you know, our first black justice was Thurgood Marshall, who also came from that storied, glorious place. Let but me just say, I'm for Sherilyn Eiffel, too. She's Fantastic. She's, she's brilliant. Fantastic. We've seen her on MSNBC with Rachel Maddow a few times and she's the best. Yeah, she really is. And so I don't I don't feel that the next the next justice, him or her, whatever race has to come from the appeals court, but they they, they traditionally have. And it's really a shame and kind of shocking that there's so few women in that black women in that pipeline. The news today we're speaking on Tuesday is that Biden has nominated 11 people for seats on the federal appellate bench and federal district courts. This is the earliest any new president has nominated people for the courts. Tell us about the 11 people he has nominated. 
Judge Katenji Brown Jackson of the DC Circuit, she's been she's been on the short list uh, because she's already great. Elevating her is going to have a, a lot of impact. I mean, it really it, it puts her on a shorter list, to be honest. I mean, once she's confirmed, and she will be confirmed, uh, it's just easier to appoint people once they've been confirmed as part of it. He's nominated three black women. He's nominated a, a, one of the first Muslim women. I mean, it's it's the most diverse roster, and the fact that there are eleven. I mean, I saw today in the number of judge appointment, judicial appointments that prior presidents have done have been in the single digits and often the single digit is zero. So, you know, it's it's really another one of those things I you know, we've talked about this before. Joe Biden was not my pick, but he has come out of the gate very energetically and with a lot of ideas that are, show that he's learned from, you know, the problems of his predecessor, Barack Obama. And there's one other notable name that is of a nominee for the Seventh Circuit, which is currently all white judges. Biden on Tuesday nominated Candace Jackson Akiwumi, somebody I've never heard of, but she was a federal public defender in Chicago for a decade. This is not the typical Harvard Law corporate defender, white man judge that, that has been getting on, into the courts for decades. No, and that's also where we got, they got uh, Amy Coney Barrett. That's also kind of fascinating. I mean, you know, Trump was an amoral moron, but he was controlled very well by the powers that be. And, you know, in addition to tax cuts, he really processed whatever Mitch brought him. He appointed them, Mitch got them through largely because he couldn't do that or he couldn't work with that efficiency until Harry Reid moved some things around. Barack Obama didn't do that. Uh, and so we really wound up leaving Donald Trump a lot of seats to fill. And Joe Biden has learned that lesson. So, you know, to the extent that Trump left a few unfilled, they're being filled. And I think that that will be a, a huge priority of the administration going forward. So we're talking about Biden's promise to nominate a black woman for the next Supreme Court opening. But some people are saying, shouldn't Merrick Garland get the nomination? He was robbed of a Supreme Court seat by Mitch McConnell. It's sad, but it doesn't work that way. I, I'm thrilled that he's going to be, our, he is, he got confirmed, finally. He's, he's our attorney general. I admire him. I have nothing against him. But I never thought that he should have been Obama's pick in the first place. We didn't need another white man on the Supreme Court. He was already older than, you know, I mean, Amy Coney Barrett is 49 years old. That's what they're looking for. That's what they've been looking for. They've been appointing people in their 40s, 49 through 50. We have to learn from that, too. So the idea that Merrick Garland is in his 60s, which I am, too. I don't like discriminating against people in their 60s for any reason. But you've got we've got to start playing hardball and and that's part of why you know i came down reluctantly on the side of i hope justice Breyer does resign speaking of older people stepping down diane feinstein is the oldest senator right now 87 she's on she's still on the senate judiciary committee although she's no longer the chair she would be replaced by a democrat because she's from california pat Leahy of vermont is 86 you know he's a wonderful guy but 86 is pretty old. Yes. I mean, Leahy, you know, Vermont has nominally a Republican governor. And, uh, you know, there are uh, there are laws in place where maybe, you know, they would have to appoint a Democrat. But but still, you know, they if they don't step down, they've really got to pledge not to run again. I mean, we've got six uh, Democratic senators in office right now who, not to be morbid, but God forbid, if they were to die in office, would be replaced by Republican governors. Uh, and so, you know, part of the calculus with uh, surrounding the Supreme Court justices is that they they can die. Uh, but with the Democrats having basically a dead even, uh, a majority that only depends on Kamala Harris, if we lose any of them, we lose everything. And, you know, to me right now, the Supreme Court just halting the bleeding, you know, it's 6-3, God forbid it's 7-2, we lose the country, it is 
the top priority. Uh, and so I really think that all the people, at least over 80 and, you know, <laughs> perhaps in their late 70s, have to be thinking about that. And so it's morbid. I, again, it's like not what I like to go around thinking about, but it, it's, it's a crisis. Well, just to stick with morbid for another minute, when you have a 50-50 Senate, you worry about every single uh, one of your people. We have lost Democratic senators before they got to their 80s. Paul Wellstone was killed in a plane crash when he was 58, and a Republican won the, the election to replace him. Eventually, that seat was occupied by Al Franken, but then he was driven from office by Democrats, unfairly in the view of many of us. So things happen even to your younger incumbents that you'd never expected. Well, that is true. That is part of life. But there are some things that are more likely. I hate this whole topic, but, you know, <laughs> people in their 80s and late 70s are more likely to have something happen to them. And so, I hope they don't. I hope they live very happily into their 90s or, you know, beyond 100 with their grandchildren and great grandchildren beside them. But they don't really necessarily have to be in the United States Senate or on the Supreme Court to have a fulfilling life. So we conclude that Justice Stephen Breyer should retire. My last question is, how soon should he do this? Pretty soon, pretty soon. I mean, partly because of the morbid things we were just discussing, but also because, you know, Republicans will find a way to postpone it, whatever happens. Uh, and, you know, the 2022 midterms are really coming up fast. Joan Walsh wrote about why Breyer should retire for thenation.com. Thank you, Joan. Thank you, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time to talk about what's on TV while we wait for the chance to watch a movie in a real theater. And so we turn to Ella Taylor, longtime film critic for the LA Weekly, NPR.org, and many other places. We reached her today at home in Santa Monica. Ella, welcome back. Thank you, John. Happy to be here. And uh, maybe I can also start by saying that Lemley theaters are now open. Um, and I've encountered at least one person who said it was all completely dandy. Precautions um, <laughs> were taken, social distancing is occurring, and uh, all is well. That's very good news. Well, we want to talk today about Our Towns. It's a documentary on HBO about James Fallows, who takes a tour of small towns which are reviving themselves through local action. I was very skeptical about this because I always thought of small towns as Trump country. And of course, it's true that Trump got a majority of the votes in most small towns. On the other hand, there are a lot more Trump supporters in big cities. I looked this up. L.A. County has more than a million Trump supporters, which is more than all the small town Trump voters, you know, west of the Mississippi. Of course, Biden got three times as many votes in L.A. County as Trump did, but there are still a lot more Trump voters in big cities than there are in total in small towns. And of course, not everybody in small towns is a Trumper. So tell us about this documentary. Well, I'm happy to say it has absolutely nothing to do with Trump. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I also should say, you know, um, riding on your coattails there, that if you go on next door here in Santa Monica, which used to be known as the People's Republic of Santa Monica, the overwhelming sentiment is a kind of a contempt for the homeless uh, and uh, a concern for property values being messed about by the presence of the homeless. So, yes, you are right. <laughs> However, this particular documentary is, is really not about Trump. Um, it was started, actually, in 2012 in our happy state of 
of bliss about what was coming next. And it's, it's directed by Stephen Asher and Jeannie uh, or Jeanne Jordan from a best-selling book um, by The Atlantic reporter and his wife, James and Deborah Fallows. James Fallows, a highly respected reporter of many years for The Atlantic. They had lived in China to cover uh, sort of small towns in China, actually, um, for about five years. And when they came back, James Fallows wrote a blog in The Atlantic where, where his work appears, asking for people, American small towners, to write in and tell about their towns. Good, bad, indifferent, didn't matter. They got over a thousand responses. And on the basis of that, um, Fellows wrote, a, I think it was a cover story in The Atlantic. I remember reading it when it came out, um, which was an account of the two of them taking off in their small, very small plane, as only sees two, to visit some of the small towns of America, looking for signs of, of civic and economic revival. So it's in a way, this film, although it doesn't intend to be, is a kind of hopeful sequel to the documentary American Factory, which tells the story of a, a town that was devastated by factory closure and things got only worse from there because it was they were taken over by a Chinese company. That was an excellent movie. This is a good movie, um, much more uh, upbeat, uh, and it is to some degree a non-political project because it's there to look at uh, civic action. In other words, it's political with a small p. Fallows himself grew up in the town of Redlands, not too far from here, in the Inland Empire, and he was very accustomed to being told that the place was full of bigoted rubes and got very tired of this. So uh, that was one of the things that sparked this particular project. And uh, one of the places that they visited from all over America was not a million miles from here, which was the city of San Bernardino, which probably many of our listeners will know uh, has gone through a series of catastrophic uh, events. They lost an Air Force base. They lost a highway that was moved away from their town. And uh, the city actually declared bankruptcy not long ago. Nonetheless, uh, this is a town um, where lots of things are going on. Um, not least, uh, they go to a high school to look at a Cajon High School, who, which not too long ago had a devastatingly low level of graduation and now has a 90% graduation um, rate and show the, the way that the high school education is tied in to attempts to um, revive local industries and invite new ones. They look at the tremendous response to a call for volunteers to count the homeless uh, and interview them about their needs so as to enact social programs for the homeless. And uh, we also discover that that his hometown of Redlands in the Inland Empire is well known as a circus town because there's lots of lots of training programs to um, fit kids to become circus performers. So there's an enormous amount. Uh, there's tremendous efforts to provide afford affordable housing, which have been largely successful. And uh, it gives a very different view of San Bernardino than most people, even in L.A. County, have. They traveled to uh, South Dakota, to the town of Sioux Falls, which has rather successfully absorbed many different kinds of refugees, but notably refugees from Somalia, where large numbers of, of uh, Somalis were quite successfully resettled and they interview them. They also tackle the opioid crisis um, by looking at one family that lost its beautiful daughter to, um, actually in this case, I think, I believe it was fentanyl and heroin. Um, and they have now dedicated their lives to helping other, other families um, who uh, have suffered from similar losses. Um, they look at uh, Sioux Falls' considerable efforts to keep Lakota history and traditional and traditions alive. 
And again, uh, it's a very poor town which has done great things. They then go to uh, the poorest state in the United States and they go to the, the town of Columbus, Mississippi, which has a large black population and uh, nonetheless has very few resources but has tackled the problem of history. I mean, Fellows is certainly something of a historian and uh, he was drawn to this town because of the efforts of both the black and the white communities to um, address the history of slavery in Mississippi, which as we know is substantial. <laughs> um, and we see lots of scenes of that and also efforts to tackle uh, unemployment. So uh, he's gone to all different kinds of towns um, and culminating in Bend, Oregon, which they count as the nicest place to live in the world. They don't live there, but, um, uh, and there they, you know, in, in, um, in all these towns, they address in particular wider issues like the decline of local newspapers, which is a, a serious threat to local communities, to people being in touch. But overall, the, the picture they portray is much more complicated than the usual idea of, um, of these small towns as repositories of uh, Trump supporters. Now, in fact, they pretty much avoid the issue altogether, except uh, tangentially. Uh, the idea here is to show the importance of local activism and creativity. And I've got to say, as somebody who comes from England, uh, which for many years, I don't know if it's still the case, had a, a very fatalistic culture, as do many European countries, especially Northern European ones where the weather is just horrid. Um, I've always been in the, you know, in the over 40 years since I've been in this country, to me, I've, I've been quite impressed by American can-doism. There is a, an emphasis on, you know, infinite perfection that I find a bit baffling. But on the other hand, there is always that meliorative spirit, which I, I did not find in, in England as an immigrant there myself. And uh, in that sense, the film, I think, is really s both very specific and concrete uh, and advocating the importance of, of local activity, which tends to get ignored by the national, the national press. And I also wanted to ask you about a Danish film called Another Round. This is one about a group of high school teachers, and it is made by an acclaimed director, Thomas Vinterberg. Tell us about Another Round. Another round has been around for a while, pardon, the, I didn't intend upon there, um, and it plays on Hulu, where you can see it, it is nominated for an, for an Oscar, an international um, film Oscar, as they're calling it now. I'm not quite as enthusiastic about this film as a lot of my colleagues have, but it's certainly a film that's enormously worth seeing. It's a film, as you can, as you might suspect, about drinking, and everything I said about European countries and Northern European countries is also true about their alcohol consumption, uh, which includes Britain, by the way, where they are known to be able to drink themselves silly in large quantities. And uh, that's certainly true of the Scandinavian countries. We've seen it in the, the films of the Finnish filmmaker Ari Aki Korismaki, who has made black comedies out of drinking culture. And in a way, this is another. Um, it's based on um, the experiences of his daughter at college, which he then made into a play and then became a film. I'll come back to that because it has a significant influence on the outcome of this film, or the, the final chapter. It's one of two films I want to talk about today that is about a man who about a person who's lost and adrift in his own life. He's going through a terrible uh, midlife crisis, even though he's played by Mads Mikkelsen, um, who a lot of my friends think is the sexiest man alive. And is also a, a very good actor. And he is one of um, four teachers in a Copenhagen high school, all of whom are going through midlife crises. Uh, in his case, 
um, he's grown apart from the wife who he really loves very much and um, doesn't think very much about his kids, uh, one of whom is in serious trouble, the older boy. One of his three friends, who they're all drinking quite heavily and ruining their careers as well as the graduation prospects of their students, comes across this theory that um, people are at their most creative um, and present in their work when they've got at least an 0.05 blood, blood alcohol level. 0.05 is a little bit less than the American standard for being legally drunk when you're not allowed to drive a car. I think that's 08 in America. So this is not quite drunk. Not quite drunk. Um, and it has, uh, at first, a tremendously, uh, they're only going to drink um, that amount at work between the hours of something like nine o'clock and five o'clock. So, of course, very quickly, their classrooms become littered with telltale empty bottles. Uh, but at first, it, it influences their performance in a very beneficial way. Suddenly, this character, Martin, played by Mickelson, um, becomes uh, the most creative history teacher ever. The problem is that very soon um, their drinking gets out of control and they go to 0.10, which is very drunk indeed, because they're binge, binge drinking pretty much round the clock and partying and so on, with disastrous consequences, some of which are quite serious. I mean, this is a kind of a comedy, but it also has a serious edge. It's not a profound movie, but it's very moving uh, and addresses the you know existential questions, how shall we live when we have to repeat our actions day after day after day, uh, and there isn't much drama, um, and how do we come to appreciate what's uh, precious and neglected in our routine lives? It's a very important question. The ensemble is very good, but, but Mickelson is particularly wonderful, in part because um, he doesn't overdo his drunkenness and he doesn't overdo the expressions of his despair. You can see my, minute changes um, in his expressions as he's mulling over what, what he should do next and, and falling into great trouble. He also has enormous, I've never noticed this with him before, he has enormous physical grace. Um, as befits a, a man who was a jazz ballet dancer uh, in his past. And even though he absolutely refuses to dance when his mates ask him to, he can't actually prevent himself from breaking out occasionally. It's really quite lovely to see. At the end, in fact, he dances a great deal and even leaps into the ocean, but it doesn't look like a suicidal um, act. The film began as an affirmation of mild drinking in um, Danish Danish culture, based on the daughter, um, on the accounts of um, of Winterberg's daughter. Tragically, although she was supposed to play the lead um, teenage role in the play, she was killed in a car accident before she could do so. And that changed the character of the film. Um, she had told her father many stories, which he apparently originally enjoyed, of the kind of binge drinking that takes place in teenagers, not just in Denmark. I can att attest to this as a parent um, that has gotten out of control. And so um, it, it changed the movie in the sense that um, it's now, I guess, an affirmation of moderate drinking, um, because in, in one rather strange scene from our puritanical points of view, um, there's a teenager who's terribly um, test shy, who just cannot take tests, and has gotten to perform in a stellar way um, by downing a shot that is advocated by one of his teachers. There is a tragedy that happens that gets everybody attention, everybody's attention in the movie. But it struck me as almost all Vinterberg's films have. He became very famous making a, a film called A Celebration while he was a member of the Dogma 
uh, Lars von Trier's dogma movement in Denmark. There's an element of glibness and smirkiness about his movies that has always bothered me uh, and that I found in this film too. I do not want to put uh, listeners off um, watching it because it's a very interesting movie and and uh, often very touching. Um, but there is a, a kind of glibness that, you know, you you finish the film saying, well, how does somebody who drinks habitually stop doing that? Um, and I don't think that the question is answered in a very satisfactory way in the, in the movie. It's certainly very much from our point of view about what we could generously call the difference between our, as you say, puritanical culture and the, the Scandinavian culture of what, what should we call it, alcoholic sociability. And of course, we worry, oh, we're just being Puritans. But there is something a little off-putting about, in particular, the happy ending, I felt. Yes, I mean, I for two years, I taught in a provincial town in England, in Northamptonshire, in a sociology department where I was the only woman. And the only thing there was to do at that time in Northampton, I beg their pardons if it's different now, uh, was to go to the pub in the evening. And because I was new to the area, I went along with these guys and they would put away 11 pints of British beer a night and I'm both hypersexual and extremely obnoxious. And I, you know, I had to stop eventually. Um, so it's not just in Scandinavia, it's all over Northern Europe where the weather is awful. So that's another round on Hulu. Can you recommend a film that is not about drinking in Denmark? I definitely can, it, although it is an, about another lost soul who's adrift in her life, although the context is very different. The film is called Shiver Baby, um, and most of it is set in a shiver, which is, most people know, is the, um, the, equivalent, the Jewish equivalent of the wake, where um, people come and eat and, uh, when there's been a bereavement, and people come mainly to eat and gossip about the, the bereaved and also uh, about everything else in their community. It's written extremely well uh, and directed slightly less well by a young woman named Emma Seligman, and it's worked up from a short that she made uh, in her final year at NYU, which got considerable attention. It is an all-women production. From the credits, I did not see a single uh, male name at any point, so it looks like uh, it, it, it really is a, a Me Too production, but a very unusual one. Um, it stars a young woman um, who's played by Rachel Sonnet. Her name is uh, Danielle. She is very close to graduation and um, absolutely floundering, and her, her mother is played by Polly Draper, whom our older listeners will um, remember from the show, the TV show, 30-something, which is having a remake very soon. And she will play presumably a, a parental character there. She's very good as, as uh, Danielle's neurotic Jewish mother, often very funny. Young Danielle finds herself at a shiver from a remote member of the family because she promised her mother she would go. And there she encounters her sugar daddy. It seems that instead of making money in college through babysitting, she has been um, making money having a sugar daddy, an activity which I understand is quite common amongst young women undergraduates, essentially She's working um, as a cool girl uh, and making much more money, but but still not quite enough. She just at the shiver. She finds she meets the guy that um, she's having sex with, and discovers new things about him, like the fact that he is married with a new baby, none of which she knew. She is also wearing a bracelet that he recently gave her, which is identical to the bracelet worn by his wife, who's also at the Shiva. His wife is a kind of ultimate shiksa, but a very accomplished one. Uh, and as, as the Shiva goes on, um, chaos ensues from um, some actions that are taken by both the, the, the sugar baby and her sugar daddy, absolute chaos, some of which is very funny, all of which is very well written, 
through that we learn of all the pressures, I think, of, of young um, Generation Z, I guess, uh, students as they try to figure out not only their rather unpromising futures, um, but also their identity of who is the person they want to be. For young Danielle, um, it's particularly complicated by the fact that her ex-girlfriend, <laughs> um, who's played by Molly Gordon, is also present at, at the Shiva. Some of this is played as farce, and it's really quite well handled. Some of it is quite appalling <laughs> um, in terms of, of uh, the, all the sharp turns it takes, um, ending in a somewhat implausible uplift. So it's quite a rough movie, um, but uh, it's unpolished, I guess I would say, but it works extremely well. It's very touching and, and moving, um, but at the same time, you know, very candid about the shortcomings of, of the various dramatist persona. I really recommend it. You can find it on uh, Amazon, Apple TV, YouTube, Voodoo, Google Play, and others, and it's doing very good box office at the moment. Um, I almost think that it should work on a double bill with The Graduate, <laughs> and uh, I enjoyed it very much. I, I actually, you know, really liked it, and I'm very anxious to see what she, what she does next. Ella Taylor is our Virus Time TV critic. Ella, thanks for talking with us this week. Thank you for having me, John. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. KPFK's general manager is Aniel Zuberi Fields. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Living in the USA.